Welcome back to Probably About Politics. This episode, Malaysia. We're, we're, we're back. We've, we've not been over to this uh, part of the world in a few episodes, at least, I think. We, we're we once again at a country that has a border with Indonesia, which I think there were yeah, a couple that's in true. a row that we did. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, Indonesia, while seemingly small, quite big in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Malaysia... A country of two parts, kind of like this episode's mm-hmm. going to be primarily focused on Malaysia, but also with a heavier dose of Antonio Gutierrez uh, coming in on the yep. second half of this episode with a totally different science news than normal. Um, so we're trying some <laughs> new things, kind of like how Malaysia tries new things by having both a peninsular Malaysia and also an island Malaysia. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> So I want to talk about a few things that are in two parts. Malaysia is in two parts, border with Thailand and peninsular Malaysia. And then also on the island half, they have a border with Brunei and Indonesia on kind of like the Indonesian island. Um, Mm -hmm. Country of 32 million people. One of the 17 mega diverse countries, which we've actually done a number of mega diverse countries. I feel like I say this fact about a lot of countries that we talk about mega diversity. The other thing that I wanted to mention about Malaysia, Kaylee, before we get into the politics, because this is obviously very political, um, but the thing that I found interesting, okay, sure, it's all interesting, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) So their type of government, bicameral, basically based on the Westminster system, right? Lower house, upper house, Mm -hmm. a a party of, or a system of two parts, but also Mm -hmm. they have a monarchy, right? And the monarchy is of so many parts, never mind two parts. This is wild. So the monarchy, like who is monarch, rotates between the nine state sultans. Okay. And Yeah, I really didn't read about this part. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I spent most of my time reading about the monarchy. Um, Because it's like, first of all, you have to keep clicking through a bunch of different Wikipedia links because Mm. I don't know what any of these words mean. Um I mean, part of it is not really fair. Like, it's not it's not like a Malaysian word or anything, but agnatic primogeniture is a word that I, <laughs> that I learned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, means, which means that a monarchy is passed down, like, patrilinearly, and, like, mm. no woman can ever get it. So instead of going, like, oh, we tried all of our sons and we don't have any or whatever, we'll give it to, the, we'll give it to our daughter. They're like, nah, it's going to your uncle. Never mind that. <laughs> um, so it's like, but only seven of the nine states with monarchies use that type of primogeniture. Um, and then there's like two other states, basically, in, in Malaysia, there's 13 states and a few territories. Mm-hmm. Only nine of them have monarchies. Seven of those monarchies use that type of primogeniture. And the other four use just a totally different type of, like, head of state called the Yang di Pertua Negari, which I guess just means head of state. And they are like appointed for rotate for four year terms, which can be renewed. And then whoever is monarch rotates around through the state sultans. um, And then the, the states that don't have sultans have these heads of states, but those heads of states cannot become the monarch. And also, In the states that don't have monarchs, the head of Islam is the monarch of the whole country. 
but in the states that do have their own monarchies, the head of the right. religion is their own sultan. Um, yeah. I probably got a lot of that wrong. So send me an email at probablepolitics at gmail.com and tell me how wrong I am about all of the monarchy in Malaysia. But it's a whole extra confusing thing that happens there. Yeah, that's it. Um, Yeah, if our um, Malaysian fan base uh, knows uh, knows what we got wrong and wants to explain it, we're happy to have them do that. Um, But also it does seem uh, like it'd be quite a lot to keep track of. I'm sure that nobody can even follow how wrong I was there because um, it's a little bit complicated. Um, But so, as I mentioned, though, the um, government in Malaysia is formed by two different houses, the Diwan Negara, which is kind of like the Senate, um, Mm -hmm. and then the Diwan Rakyat, which is the lower house of representatives. The the, uh, lower house has 222 seats. The upper house has 70 seats. Um, typically, um, in the lower house, it's just formed by an alliance of different parties that form a coalition government right now. There's not just a coalition government, not just a coalition government, but also confidence and supply, Mm. um, partnerships between other alliances and the actual governing government rather than Mm -hmm. even in, in the, in the Senate, rather than even having like an opposition there's just yeah. the government which is a coalition of alliances which are themselves coalitions and then a confidence mm-hmm. and supply agreement from a different alliance and then the balance of seats are just vacant <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah things have been shuffling around a lot and uh yeah sort of just to keep things actually functioning in the government sometimes in in these cases you have to yeah uh you have to find different ways to ensure support but it's not entirely different than say in canada where the ndp agreed yeah. uh, to support the liberals um that is sort of a, a confidence and supply style agreement rather than a coalition um yeah now here's the thing that i don't understand and this seems like a this is like the first time this has been done in Malaysia, it seems, is that mm-hmm. there's a coalition government that makes that currently has 116 seats out of 222. So they have a majority mm-hmm. with that coalition, but then they also have a confidence and supply agreement with a different alliance, which makes up another 90 seats. And then that yeah. alliance, that of that confidence and supply alliance, there's another version of that alliance. There's PH and PH plus, which is like the Alliance of hope. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that alliance has like split and the majority of that alliance is in the confidence and supply agreement. (laughs) Part of it is forming the opposition still. So yeah, I think we're going to get into this before we even talk really about what this election is about in the, the state of the government in malaysia since Mm -hmm. 2018 and how they've responded to covid and how many different prime ministers they've had since 2018 (laughs) because the guy in charge right now did not get the most votes in 2018 (laughs) and there was somebody in between as well (laughs) yeah so (laughs) yeah yeah it's so i think yeah what you're seeing is is definitely the signs like if you if you haven't read about the election the sign based on needing a confidence supply and agreement while you also have the majority of 
uh, in within your existing alliance is sort of a sign that maybe things haven't been stable or alliances haven't been guaranteed and shifting. And so having the most support possible has been has been necessary to keep things going. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this this election is, is somewhat a, a result of, of that instability and the ne- the feeling the need to um, to return to the voters, because it's certainly again, it's not at all what was originally elected in 2018. Um, uh, and, and as well, uh, it was, so the 2018 election was kind of a big deal. It was the first election, um, since, uh, Malaysia started having direct elections in, in 1955, um, where the, uh, the UMO, which is, uh, a sort of nationalist right-wing party, uh, coalition did not win the election. Um, and it was, uh, an opposition, group that managed to win which is is was a big deal at the time it was seen as a it was the Pakhtan Harpen the center left coalition mm-hmm. um uh took took the majority uh a two seat majority so so you can already see it was maybe a, maybe not the most stable of majorities and but it was seen as a really a, a big opportunity maybe for um some reforms and and uh pushing forward um, but that lasted not very long. That that government lost it lasted, I think it was twenty two months mm-hmm. in total of of the whole um, of their whole uh, potential term. And so uh, and so, what then happened was actually the I believe the UMOs alliance came into power after that again returning to power. But the, there's been a lot of different reconfigurations of of parties within to try and create stable coalitions um to to get to the full term of this last like full term from 2018 to uh 2023 um and that has been a tricky process Mm -hmm. for a few different reasons that we can get into so just to to consolidate right the winner of the 2018 not necessarily the winner right the Mm -hmm. the alliance that got the most seats was mm-hmm. the the ph party the alliance for um the alliance for malaysia or, or the alliance of hope and the the pakatan harapan party right the mm-hmm. ph party led by anwar ibrahim um so they got 100 seats the actual government formed was still a coalition that had umno support right so they had mm-hmm. so the the prime minister yeah. Coming out of 2018, even though they didn't win the most seats, which was a new thing, was um, Mahathir Mohamed, who was the leader of the Bursa 2 party, which is part of the the PN alliance. So the, basically the alliances are the PH alliance, which is kind of the left guy. And then the right guys are the PN and the BN alliance. And the BN alliance is headed as the party by the UMNO, right? Mm-hmm. So we had Mahathir Mohamed, Bursa 2 party of the PN um, alliance forming a coalition between the PNs and the BNs. <laughs> and yes. Mahathir Muhammad is, is prime minister. But then in 2020, right, up leading up to 2020, several um, members of parliament have all crossed the floor and changed parties and moved around quite a bit, um, which leads to uh, Mahathir Muhammad no longer being prime minister and a reconsolidation of who has power. Um, and then we get uh, Muhyiddin Yassin is the new prime minister, right? So Muhyiddin Yassin is the leader um, currently uh, or at the time of the Bursa 2 party. Um, mm-hmm. And now 
uh, between tw- and he was prime minister between 2020 and 2021 and then following the covid um, pandemic uh, <laughs> there was a bunch of people who wanted a different uh, leader and everything and then since 2021 the leader has been Ismail Sabri Yaqub who is the the prime minister currently and he is the leader of the UMNO party so it's kind of after everything that was different it's kind of back to the UMNO as the current leader so that's kind of where we stand but a lot happened yeah. a lot happened in there between that right yeah um and and so yeah the two big things that you can point to i guess is uh first the pandemic which we mm-hmm. see you know repeatedly throughout the elections we're covering it was but somewhat it important really... in the last in the last few years yeah in the last two years and and the responses of these governments uh were often seen as lacking there was a really severe economic impact uh that dramatically devalued malaysia's currency um, and, and shrunk the GDP, and it had a lot of effects on sort of social uh, components of, of life. Uh, I think they like uh, completely had to delay um, issuings of birth certificates and death certificates for a while, so there's significant backlogs in those sorts of areas of, of life and living life, and, and that created a lot of unrest. Um, and, and the fact that, and, and the thing that also, it sort of coincided with these political crises of, of these movings of actors between of, of members between parties um so the the repeated waves of covid-19 and emergency member uh, measures being sort of put in place really exasperate the political stability instability that that sort of the the country was experiencing at the time just sort of naturally um but this the the sort of other component that was happening is a fairly major uh, uh, corruption, bribery, money laundering uh, conspiracy that really implicated um, a number of uh, high-ranking Malaysian politicians, particularly um, from the UMNO party, which was, again, the party that ended up losing for the first time um, their their control of power in the mm-hmm. 2008 election. 2008 election. Um, former uh, Prime Minister Najib Razak w- had been put on trial and was convicted and imprisoned, um, and and this sort of scandal actually was the department U.S. Department of Justice said as noted as the largest kleptocracy case to date, um, and and sort of had uh, major implications uh, for political banking and entertainment figures in the in in Malaysia and internationally. Um, and so, so, so there was a really major hangover of that into both the 2018 election and then the preceding years mm-hmm. uh, uh, that uh, of for for the stability of political parties. And I think you, you sort of you see what happens is uh, with with the election of an entirely new uh, for the first time, like a, the political opposition became the governing mm-hmm. um, body. It didn't last very long in the end, but ultimately, like you see, the, this sort of response created that instability, instability in a country that had been very consistent um, in sort of who was who was governing. Um, so, so all these sort of, sort of things, these these three components, I would say, really came together um, to create a lot of sense of instability. And now we're at a point in an election where it's sort of, un- this election, it was sort of unclear what coalitions, what alliances will come together to form. Um, and, and it's unclear if they will actually be, this election will solve that problem, create the stability, a, a government that can last for a full term. Um, 
but also we have a population that is is really ready to move on. They they are very worried about the economic situation in Malaysia, concerned about inflation, and and they have and polling sort of indicates that they're kind of ranking that above the political instability at this point. They would like to to be moving forward. So it, it it'll be interest. It's interesting to sort of consider that in the context of of whether or not the government is able to to create that stability. What does that mean for what the voters will decide to do? I guess in addition to the fact that they added two million voters to uh, to their uh, voting list. I mm-hmm. guess so. There's going to be a lot. So that's basically one of the biggest differences that's coming into this um, election, right? Is that for one. A lot of the the elections are happening out of sync now because during the COVID-19 pandemic, previous to that, basically almost all of the states within Malaysia all held their state elections also at the same time as the national election. That's not happening this time. So voters are kind of spread out and voting for different things at different times. And at the same time is that kind of chaos element, <laughs> this <laughs> other chaos element of this mandatory voting registration coming in at the same time or before the same election as reducing the voting age from the from 21 to the age of majority in Malaysia, which is 18, um, adding a huge number of voters to the voting pool coming into coming into this election. Yeah. So it's a and it's an entirely new. Yeah. So it, not only is it. Yeah. Like the the infrastructure of handling those new voters is also how do the parties appeal to people who are in the age great age range of 18 to, to, to 21, you know, or to 20. And so um, so that's a really big question going forward, I guess, is is how does that reshape the parties? Because we, I think to a certain extent, you already saw that in the fact that Malaysia didn't vote for the it has re, for the first time ever switched in 2018 um switched its its uh governing parties um up and so does that sort of indicate that maybe a new generation of voters in the last election were leaning in a new direction or was that entirely in response to the scandals um and 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 the criminal uh activity that was that they were implicated in um or is it and and then what what can these new voters tell us about the direction that Malaysia is heading in terms of who, who they'll vote for um, and what parties appeal to them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like, it's just interesting to me that like all of these new voters coming in at between 18 and 21, I think at least in Canada often, in a certain age group, there's like a certain kind of prevailing party that you might vote for or kind of political ideology um, that might form. And a lot of people still don't vote because they're like, I don't know anything about politics. Or I don't know about who I'm going to vote for or whatever. All politicians are the same is like kind of like the common things you might hear. In Malaysia, despite having a first past the post single member democracy, um, there's like 20 different parties represented in in the legislature, right? Yeah. Um, Which is, I can only imagine is very confusing and adds to this level of chaos, especially because you might be wondering, you might say, okay, hey, probo politics, I listened to your episode 
on different voting systems back in the summer of 2018. And I know that first past the post typically leads to having two parties, sometimes three parties with a spoiler effect, right? How is there over 20 parties represented in parliament? And it's because they already form these alliances Mm -hmm. beforehand and these alliances persist between elections. And typically in one riding, similar parties or parties from the same alliance won't all contest that seat so there's many parties but kind of the alliances are much like it seems to me that the parties are more like we would imagine as factions within established parties and the alliances are more like what we see as parties as a whole yeah somewhat uh, but not yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's it's not a bad analogy for sure. I think that it's probably a pretty accurate way to think about it. Um, I think as well, like, it's worth noting that uh, there's significant, like, ethnic lines that voting takes place on. Like, it was, I read in one article that it was a, it, a big part of the problem for um, the UMNO was uh, that there was a new uh, Malaysian nationalist party. Um, so in, in Malaysia, there are, you know, there are also large ethnic Chinese and Indian populations. Um, and, and, and then there is the, the sort of Malaysian nationalists uh, that, that some political parties appeal to. So there are those sorts of breakdowns as well. Um, so even within, you know, right wing, there is also right wing uh, focusing on, uh, on Malaysian um, ethnic Malaysian uh, individuals, and then more focusing on maybe Islamic uh, or Chinese or Indian uh, background, different backgrounds, uh, and how they break down that way. That exists obviously across uh, elections that we've covered, but I think uh, it does sort of uh, make up like what you're saying, the factions within these alliances, I guess, and how they can shape and form. Mm-hmm. Like, just as an example, right? Like with that the umno the national organization um party is within that national front bn alliance mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and then other parties that support them within that bn alliance are the malaysian chinese association the malaysian indian congress right mm-hmm. and then yeah. groups like the the pn uh national alliance which is also similarly on the right um has mm-hmm. their their main party bursa too right um which is an indigenous party, but then also represented in that alliance is the Malaysian Islamic party. Um, mm-hmm. So you kind of have similar idea or ideologies, maybe with slightly different flavors across the country, which I think an analog in Canada might be if like there's like a liberal alliance and then instead of having a liberal branded candidate in alberta they might decide to run under a different banner um, just because (laughs) they want to get rid of this amount of weight that they might have uh, associated Mm -hmm. with something right Um, yeah so just the the sheer numbers of parties and difference of leaders and different prime ministers that have happened in the last four years um, can make it daunting uh, to look at uh, how this is going and especially because coalitions form between the alliances as well to form the government like the government right now right is between the bn and pn mostly um Mm -hmm. and somewhat also between this gps um alliance that we haven't mentioned yet at all (laughs) (laughs) um but then when you're like looking at the polling numbers 
um, it's mostly um, the Alliance of Hope that that PH party uh, or the PH alliance that has kind of the most, but that alliance seems to mostly be a coalesced alliance, and then mm-hmm. the coalition that forms is a coalition between alliances that are more um, united um, across alliance lines. So it seems like mm-hmm. yeah. kind of opposite to what we think is that kind of the left is more coalesced in in Malaysian politics. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it'll be an interesting election day, I think. Is but so we we mentioned the the number of voters coming in. I think it's also worth noting that they have called it the election in the middle of uh you know the the flood uh season. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a really really worth uh keeping an eye on it. Uh, uh the. Yeah, flood. The area will be affected by parts of Malaysia will be affected by floods and uh, and severe monsoon rains uh, starting in the next week or so, which will cause flood flash floods in low lying areas. Um, and sort of in December twenty twenty one, about uh, about twenty four people were actually killed after after sort of these flash flood events and days of heavy rain so that could really um, impact who who turns out to vote and where they turn out to vote um in addition to you know again um uh, i think like millions of new voters also mm-hmm. being added to the picture yeah. yeah the the election was called um there's 60 days between rip drop and polling day uh in malaysia um, so they had up to five years for this parliament to sit. Um, it's been called mm-hmm. after four years. So it's been called early, which is atypical. Um, and further to that, of the 60 possible days um, for campaigning, um, the actual election day has been moved up about a month because it could have gone until mm-hmm. mid-December. So it's been moved up to November 19th, 2022, um, to hopefully kind of get around some of those flooding concerns. Um, having the, having the election a little bit earlier than those even sixty days could could allow for, but that will definitely still um, potentially affect turnout, um, which could Im- impact the outcome of the election. So that's the uh, Malaysian election um, that's coming up on November nineteenth, twenty twenty two. As I said, um, up in the air. Um, there's still, I think, about a third of voters undecided, and between um, leading alliances, um, the breakdown seems similar to what the alliance breakdown was in support uh, at 2018, um, which led to a pretty tightly contested um, post-election uh, coalition formation with you know just over the 111-seat mark um, being gained to form government. So this is probably an election... Um, where the results will be um, unknown right up until probably November 20th um, once yep. <laughs> once those coalitions uh, coalition lines start getting drawn between alliances um, so that is Malaysia but we're gonna cut election discussion a little bit short in this episode so that we can talk about um, the United Nations and how um, Antonio Gutierrez is doing yeah, so we're we're at uh we're at COP again. Uh, COP twenty seven um uh is happening in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt. Um and sort of I I don't I, I sent it to Alex when it happened. I don't know how much attention it got, but um in a in a sort of a, a funny little um moment, <laughs> uh, the one of the maybe the few funny moments at COP twenty seven, uh, Antonio Gutierrez was handed the wrong speech. 
while he was uh, speak open doing the opening address for a session uh, with uh, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore on tracking carbon emissions. <laughs> he sort of started this speech uh, saying, the world is losing the race against the climate crisis, but I am hopeful because of you. You have been relentless in holding decision makers account... And then he said, I think I've been given the wrong speech. <laughs> uh, he, he was due to speak to a group of young people after this address. Um, and, and so he, after sort of a bit of confusion, they got on the right speech and he got on, on track again. <laughs> uh, uh. Um, and and the, that's sort of, a, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think that has happened before while we've been covering uh, Gutierrez's journey as, as secretary general. So, you know, he, mm. he's keeps track of things fairly well um but yeah but cop uh cop 27 has uh has been kind of an interesting uh time it's sort of one of it's it's uh sort of one of the in-between cops you get the bigger cops like uh that that where countries come together to make really big statement agreements and then there's uh then there'll be a, a few sort of cops in the middle there where they're trying to keep track of them um but but what makes uh this uh cop particularly interesting um and i think why i wanted us to to sort of make the time to talk about it here is that it is the first time where sort of they they set on the agenda specifically in uh, for, for the the cop um specifically in matters relating to finance they said in matters relating to funding arrangements, uh, responding to loss and damages associated with adverse effects of climate change, including a focus on addressing loss and damages. And so the term loss and damages, I think we maybe mentioned it when we talked about COP26, um, it has been very uh, controversial in that um, uh, developing nations, small island nations, etc., have been really pushing for the inclusion of loss and damage mm -hmm. in the discussion of uh, of what uh, uh, states should be doing to address climate change, while other larger states like the United States, the EU, Canada have been a lot more resistant to the idea of loss and damages. Um, and so they've been hard. It's been historically difficult to put on the agenda. This is the first time since the summit started 30 years ago that it has been on COP's agenda. Um, and I guess, yeah, to, to sort of say what basically what it means is uh, that there is a, a, an accounting for the cost of climate change for the countries who are experiencing it the most and that there should be uh, money included for the loss, the, the losses and damage that they experience, um, especially given um, that we know that uh, de developing nations are often the nations that are on the front lines of the experience of, of climate change. Uh, and so you can see why uh, this has maybe been a bit controversial, but this is sort of the first time when there's been some really um, interesting uh, conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And something interesting um regarding these loss and damage uh, funds. Um, so in the 2021 COP, right, Scotland was the first country to put money forward to a loss and damage fund like this. Um, mm -hmm. Since then, um, now other countries have announced support. New Zealand, $20 million. Austria, uh, 50 million euros. Um, other European countries, a total of 170 million euros. Um, but 
at this COP, Pakistan has said that these the floods in Pakistan have cost the country $30 billion, with a B. Mm-hmm. And all of yeah. these other amounts are um, in the million dollars with an M. Even tens to hundreds of millions. Um, so, I mean, it seems like most of this money um, that has been now pledged um, is, you know, 1% of what Pakistan needs. Um, and... Right. Up until 2020, a total of $29 billion was pledged, um, which is less even than one major event costs uh, a country. So a lot to do, but it's interesting that this is kind of picking up steam. Yeah, I mean, so I I think uh, another thing um, that the uh, prime minister of Pakistan uh, said uh, that that was worth noting, really breaking down, you know, that we have, you're taking on like the, the, the the public the cost of, of public debts and and managing the social infrastructure of running a country then piling on top a disaster like the flooding in Pakistan which was so expensive and then you cre- what it ultimately creates is such a hole for these countries to have to try and, and dig out of and it is unreasonable to expect that this wouldn't require uh, funding and support um, and I think you know for for many of them it's uh, the, it, there, we do see a few leaders from some of these countries being quite vocal. Um, the uh, leader of the Bahamas, uh, I believe his name is Prime Minister Davis, said, uh, I'm not here to ask any of you to love the people of my country with the same passion that I do, but I'm asking what is it worth to you to have mil- uh, millions of climate refugees turn into tens of millions, putting pressures on our political and economic systems around the world. Um, and, and so there's some really clear and explicit language around the fact that without this money, um, there's, there's going to be very significant global costs. It is an investment, um, that, that, that should be considered, uh, to the global good. Um, as well, I think it's, I'll, I'll share this article. It's, it's very useful to consider, but so in, in, uh, at, there was a hundred, a hundred billion dollar target, um, set uh, for countries to contribute um, to climate financing, like uh, all these countries coming together to contribute to that. Um, and it's currently found that uh, the US, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom have collectively fell about, uh, fell tens of billions of dollars short of their fair share of that 100 billion. Um, the biggest offender is obviously the United States is actually $32.3 billion short of their collect of their like appro- approximate share of of that hundred billion that they, they should be fine contributing based on historical emissions. Um, but, you know, Canada is actually the second worst. We're about $3.3 billion short. Um, and then Australia is 1.7 and the United Kingdom is 1.4. Um, and so it's like this very it's it's a really important sort of perspective to place on the fact that that there are real numbers that can be attributed to what is owed based <laughs> based just on the idea of emissions not let alone the the impacts of climate change on countries who have then not um, contributed significantly uh, to emissions and 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 this sort of imbalance uh, uh, is uh, is increasingly I think, becoming a clear barrier to reaching a lot of the climate objectives that are being laid out at meetings like COP. Mm -hmm. And to put in perspective, I think federal budget or federal spending of the United States um, 
last year was almost seven trillion dollars so i mean yes. 36 billion come on that that's just shake the sofa or something you know mm-hmm. i think they yeah. can get it done <laughs> <laughs> so i get that that's kind of what this cop is supposed to do and maybe the ones that are i think every five years right that happen that are kind of the bigger ones um mm-hmm. going forward like what is the idea with these funds and like do these funds go into like a main kind of slush fund that then countries can apply to to get funding out of to support their climate related um catastrophes and is it all reactive spending or does this money go into some proactive pool um, that can kind of build reinforcements in certain regions or create um, different infrastructure that might be able to offset the effects of some of these big things and is there like a mechanism in place for countries to do that yet yeah so it's kind of a how the money gets delivered is a bit distributed across like there's certainly bilateral sort of country to country uh donations uh based on like the government of canada's development agenda has a really significant like uh they apply like i I believe they apply the this probably is an exact term but climate lens and so a lot of uh, development money is then directed with climate change in mind um but uh, yeah there there's uh and then there's com- contributions to development banks um which then distribute it as well as uh other climate funds and private sort of sources but yeah there it yeah <laughs> that's kind of the answer i guess is it's sort of a distributed approach uh to, to uh uh redistributing climate or to distributing climate finances i guess yeah mm-hmm. okay so when there was like a post tropical storm that hit New Brunswick and then a branch fell off my tree in the backyard because it's weird that yeah. a hurricane is in the North Atlantic and it took yeah. down my, my clothesline. Is there a specific yeah. UN body that I should apply for uh, to yes. get that money? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would guess it's it's uh, never really that direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm sure that some of the organized like uh, Red Cross or um, various organizations are probably mostly federally getting money to, to do that to, so to address those problems that's who yeah. i should apply to is the red cross yeah well you know the i don't know but organizations who who manage those those crises but it's all yeah they're they are how the, the money gets distributed across different organizations sort of working in in these areas so yeah you have your development banks would be probably more focusing on long-term projects rather than reactionary projects but then Mm -hmm. you would have your emergency response bodies that would also probably get uh chunks of that money and are responding to like the flooding in pakistan um Mm -hmm. and and that sort of thing so and then you and then again you have the bilateral like what does germany or germany's relationship with say ken this is totally random i don't know if it's real but kenya and then the money would go between between them based on an agreement um but yeah that's it's yeah so it's it's a lot it's sort of the further the less local you get how money is distributed is a lot more uh sort of difficult to track and see um but yeah i'll share there's some really there's been some really interesting i think uh conversation particularly around something else that we we should mention is again this is in 
this is in Egypt, uh, and there has been a lot of uh, sort of protests around the COP, uh, around human rights violations. Um, and I think we see this in, in loss and damages in itself as a, a concept is that the, the, there are no climate without human rights, uh, climate justice, which is what loss and damages really could, is a part of is this idea of climate justice, that there is an inherently an injustice that climate change creates for many people in the world. And loss and damage is part of sort of trying to balance those scales. Um, but also the fact that COP is, you know, many world leaders are traveling there on private jets. Egypt has really cracked down on the ability to protest. And that's a really big part of COP historically. Um, uh, and has, uh, there, so there have been many objections uh, to uh, and, and uh, calls on leaders to put pressure on Egypt r- regarding their human rights practices. So um, there's been kind of this interesting um, development at a COP that's, that's recognizing some of these sharp challenges in reaching issues of, of climate justice um, that exist and how COP is currently run by, uh, by the more powerful nations. Uh, it's also worth noting that while it is in Egypt this year, I believe next year it is in the United Arab Emirates. So I don't think that we are done talking about uh, climate change, climate justice, and human rights. <laughs> right. And has there been any updates? I guess it's only two years since since the um, twenty twenty one in Glasgow. Um, yeah. But how are the uh, how are the emissions targets going? They're because they're they're coming uh, up here. I know that two years isn't very long, but we're on like a on a, like a twenty eight year time horizon now. Once everybody says that they're going to be net zero by what like twenty fifty, typically twenty mm-hmm. twenty forty to twenty sixty. Yeah. So I guess yeah. So Biden had went and said that they were going to meet their emissions targets by 2020, 2030. That was his big uh, speech in Egypt this, uh, for the, this COP. Um, it is worth noting that the UN did release a report this last week, I guess, uh, not even just this year, uh, that we are currently, global emissions are on track to rise 10.6% by 2030. So I would say we're not necessarily... Um, on track. Uh, it has been sort of really raised the challenges um, that are created by, I think, you know, the, the land war in, in Europe, um, and, as well as the these uh, climate-related crises also create um, their own emission, like, own challenges with transitioning um, so, so, so they were sort of realizing that the, uh, the, there are um, things that come up uh, in in, a, in the course of a year that make it harder every year to to address the uh, emissions targets. Um, we know for sure that the Russia's war in Ukraine has really made it difficult to uh, to to address the need for the supply of fossil fuels. Um, while also, as as Biden points out, raising the need to move away from fossil fuels because uh, of the control that countries like Russia is able to exert because of their control over our dependence on fossil fuels. So ultimately, uh, it's been a complicated year for that, um, that maybe has raised uh, several important reasons uh, that are important questions about if we'll be able to meet those 2030 goals. Hmm. Well, it seems like maybe 
I'm just more aware of it now, but it seems like there's actually stuff. It feels like in the last like five years, things have actually started kind of happening on the, on the climate change front on like a larger scale than, than was previously thought could actually happen. Um, so hopefully, um, fewer wars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, there can be no, um, uh, I don't think underestimating the big, it was a big year in terms of the, the United States, um, putting out an actually ambitious, um, plan and objective regarding climate change is, is a huge win. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there have been, I think that's the, I wouldn't want us to leave on a too negative a note. It is a big deal that we've actually started talking about loss and damages. That means that countries are realizing that that's going to be a part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a big step forward in itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about some science news now which is cool. moderately related to uh, the climate. Um, uh-huh. So I guess last episode we were talking about Brazil, right? This episode mm-hmm. we're talking about a mega diverse region in the world with huge amounts of biodiversity. And I was kind of interested in this this idea of like what this means to be a mega diverse region. And there's like, mm-hmm. so there's 17 countries that are considered mega diverse. Um, and if you go on like a list of them and see, it's like, wow, these, these places have like thousands and thousands of species. So I just looked up this like recent paper that showed up, um, in July where, um, this, this group of researchers went to a mega diverse region in the Amazon, um, to two different tropical rivers. And these rivers are filled with tons of different t- species of fish so over a hundred different types of fish in both of these rivers um and they asked um fisher people what the type of fish was that they were looking at for like over a hundred different pictures and it turns out um <laughs> i'm not sure why the researchers are so surprised by this it turns out that the fishers know a lot about the fish in their rivers um Mm -hmm. so the research basically is done because it's really difficult to get good data on um fish stocks uh in these kind of like tropical rivers and difficult to know the economic value of these types of fish and which fish are are being fished in their abundance Mm -hmm. um and it turns out that if you just ask the people there that they actually know quite Mm -hmm. a bit of it um but the interesting part is that the two rivers actually showed different levels of knowledge for the fishers and the types of fish that are there. So the two different rivers are the Negro River and the Tapajos River. Um, the Negro River has over 100, had 115 types of fish species that they asked the fishers about. And the Tapajos Rivers had 119 fish species. Um and on average, Negro River, the fishers knew 91 species, and the, tap, mm-hmm. the Tapajos was 115 species. Um, and among all eight people that they asked on each river, that were each, they asked one fisher from each community along the river. Oh, um, okay, so yeah. they asked 16 total people, eight for each river, one from each community along the river. Um, and if they pooled the data from all eight people that they asked, those eight people could identify every fish in the river. Mm -hmm. Um, But they created this like knowledge index 
So Mm -hmm. it was like, how well known is a fish compared to a few different axes? And those different axes were um, the fish abundance. So they actually did count the fish. They compared it to the fish size and the importance to fisheries. So being like how much those are actually fished by the fishers. And they found that in the Negro River, the knowledge index of the fish was related to fish abundance. So the more the fish, more fish there were, the more they knew them. The bigger the fish there were, the more they knew them. And the more important they were for fishing, the more they knew them in the Negro Mm -hmm. River. But in the Tapaos River, (laughs) the only knowledge index that was related to um, one of those criteria was fish size. Mm. So yeah, the number of fish totally not related yeah. or the, the abundance of that fish and how important that fish mm-hmm. was totally not related to how much these eight guys knew <laughs> what type of fish it was just how big yeah. it is <laughs> did they pause it why they think that is no but also i think it might be because um the Tapaos river um it, on average it seemed like they knew more about the fish Mm-hmm. so there was 119 fish species that they showed them and that those people knew on average 115 of them whereas negro mm-hmm. river they knew on average 91 out of 115 so it might just be that in the Tapajos river they basically know all of all the fish <laughs> yeah so um the, yeah it's hard to correlate it so like if a fish is less abundant or more abundant they just know them all the time so the abundance is not really mm. correlated um whereas yes. um it doesn't necessarily mean that oh fishers on the tapajos river don't understand the importance of fish abundance and the importance of them to fisheries it just means that they know all the fish <laughs> yeah yeah no it's it's not uh, yeah not as tied to economic uh importance of that fish yeah. Yeah, yeah um but i thought this was kind of interesting that I was like, what's it like to live in a mega diverse region? That's what I was trying to understand, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, if you're a fisher on this river, I think I've been fishing a few times. And it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know how many fish that I could name. There's like a perch or a bass. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you're trying to catch. It's like you're going a specific yeah. type of fishing. And there's like half a dozen, maybe a dozen type of fish in this lake. I don't know. Um, but to have, you know, over 100 types of species just on your in your river seems really mm-hmm. incredible and they know all the different types and they asked extra questions because the fishers were always giving them extra information like oh mm-hmm. this fish will look different you have two pictures of the same species of fish but one of them is female and one of them is male or this fish <laughs> actually is not they included one by accident that wasn't from that river and they still knew that type mm-hmm. of fish they're like oh that that guy's from a different river yeah um, so it's, it's really interesting yeah i mean i'm sure that fishers in non-mega diverse regions also know a lot about fish <laughs> yes but, yeah <laughs> but this is just really interesting to me. so we'll link it it's an open access paper actually in a canadian journal too um even though it's in, cool. in brazil titled which fish is this and the after the question mark title is fishers know more than 100 fish species in mega diverse tropical rivers <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that is the Malaysian election coming up on November 19th. That is COP27 happening in Egypt. And also that is a hundred types of fish. And this has been, uh, probably about politics. Um, thank you for listening. 
uh, and uh, follow us on Twitter at probpolitics. Send us an email at probpolitics at gmail.com or search for our website on Google. It's a Wix site. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Probopolitics. We love you all. We love you. Bye.